Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. What crazy times we're living in at the moment, eh? I hope you are all staying healthy. Our hearts go out to those affected by coronavirus around the world. Whether sick with it, caring for those who are sick or dying from it, or just dealing with life in lockdown. I hope you are all taking good care. We've been extremely fortunate here in New Zealand to have had few deaths, only 11 so far, relatively few cases, around 1,100, and have only had 13 in-hospital cases at a time, and only five patients admitted into ICUs around the country. Not bad for a country of almost 5 million people. We entered complete lockdown early, almost four weeks ago, and have seen the early benefits of that in terms of cases. Not that lockdown has been easy, but it has paid off so far and saved lives. This is episode number 15, recorded just yesterday actually, and today I talk with Simone Hannah-Clark. This interview was recorded by video call, which did present a few challenges, but hopefully sounds okay. Simone is a New Zealander who has worked for the last 15 years in New York City. She's currently working at Mount Sinai Hospital in the medical ICU. Simone and I have followed each other on Twitter for a while, and recently she published an incredibly insightful and thought-provoking piece in the New York Times, highlighting her experience caring for patients during the coronavirus pandemic. I was really keen to talk to her and hear what she has been experiencing and how life has been for her at work and home. In this episode, we talk about the realities of caring for COVID-19 patients in her ICU, how it really sucks at times, how she and her team are looking out for each other in these challenging times, and how she hopes that some positive change will come out of all of this. So grab a cuppa, sit back and have a listen to the interview with Simone Hannah-Clark. Hi Simone, thanks so much for talking with me today from New York. Tell us a little bit about what you've been seeing. We've had a lot of young people too, like without a public street or anything. Mm. So it's really scary and I mean not as many, but like over four year old the other day, I mean he had no past history Um, and he was on, you know, Maximum getting nitric oxide set with like seven pounds on all of that. Mm. He ended up he got transferred to work hard. I work in the medical ICU. Right. He got transferred. We, we put him on ECMO and then he got transferred to the cardiothoracic mm. ICU and he's still there. He's still alive, but like, who knows? Yeah, it's just random, isn't it? You know, it's often some of the fittest people that you see who actually have the worst decline and sometimes the quickest decline too. So, yeah. Yeah. Have you found that um, a lot of them, you know, because what we find with influenza often is they're those ones who, you know, just have a like a, maybe a day or so of feeling unwell and they circle the drain really quick and present really quick. Yeah. 
Have you seen much of that? Yeah. 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 And also, though, I mean, I usually, by the time they come up to us, they're intubated already. Mm -hmm. But we'll have a stable intubated place on minimal settings, tanks. Mm -hmm. It happens a lot. And they're all hypercoagulable as well. Yeah. So we think maybe they're throwing clots or something because they'll just decrease that. You know, they're sitting around like 92, and then they'll just go down to the 70s, and we're like, mm-hmm. and we, we're trying not to, you know, bag people because we're aerosoling, so it's really tricky to manage them. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you have to bump them or you have to do these things, and you just sort of hope yeah. that you're <laughs> protecting you. Well, there's a lot of, um, you know, as with any sort of novel illness, there's a lot of making it up as you go, isn't there, and trying to figure out what are the right settings. Yeah, Yeah, no, we totally are. And, I mean, there's some wonderful innovation coming out, like, you know, some of the stuff I talked about in my article about how we, you know, we figured out really early on we need to have our pumps out of the room, how much Mm. extension to, how much do we have to flush if we're getting antibiotic, you know. So we figured out how long everything is. Mm. We even had our A-lines out at one point. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it worked for a bit, but just all of that, all of that dead space yeah. um, clot, and they're clotting off all their catheters anyway. Mm. So you're finding things, yeah, I was going to say, things like arterial lines or central lines and, you know, peripheral lines that are clotting more quickly, yeah. I mostly like with the CPH, they'll clot when their pressures will be high. Yeah. And then they'll clot and we'll do alteplase, TPA in the lines. But then, like, my patient got dialysis two days ago and the dialysis nurse, she connected him and then it just was occluded. And she said, this is like patient today, COVID patient, that I haven't been able to dialyze because their catheter's Amazing, eh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. And everyone's on a heparin strip. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, we don't know. We don't, I mean, when I say we don't know what we're doing, we, we, we just, we... In a controlled way. <laughs> oh, yeah. In a way, we don't really know. We're just trying. And, like, mm-hmm. even the high peak strategy, like the ARDS, you know, strategies that we're using, like we're like, I don't, we don't know if that's even helping. But like when they're off, when there's O2 set seventy five, you sort of and they're already hundred percent. They're already on nitric. They're what more? You just you throw them on like fifteen a week, right? But yeah. I don't know if we're causing more harm. Mm. The stuff I'm doing is like we need to try to avoid inflammation with these patients. What choice do you have, right? When, yeah. So are you finding you've got, um, you know, a reasonable number of patients still who aren't intubated? or um, Because early on everyone was kind of getting intubated, weren't they? And that seems to have changed a little bit over time perhaps? Yes. And, you know, so I'm in a 14 bedded ICU. We have multiple ICUs in my house. Mm. So we're just 14 beds. We're 22 patients. The other day when I was there because we're double now. The rooms, you can imagine it's just like so cramped. Chaos, yeah. Organised chaos as it always is anyway. Mm-hmm. But, um, so I think every single patient bar one was intubated and we had just estimated that guy and he was on high flow max yeah. settings and an a breather, not looking great, that we were trying to avoid re-intubating. Mm-hmm. 
that might take hypertension type two diabetes. So mm-hmm. the two might one of the you know two of the big sort of comorbidities that are um, you know yeah like hypertension diabetes uh, high cholesterol. But like I'm seeing the obesity, the pinch of you know not even like super obese, just mm-hmm. like make even overweight they tend to do worse like just observation yeah like that 40 year old October about on before he the I mean he had no history but he was you know overweight probably yeah. yeah maybe yeah yeah maybe MI or something like that. yeah so not morbidly obese but yeah but just yeah I don't know. You know, you try and grasp at straws, trying to figure out like why is this happening to It'll be really interesting to see when it kind of all washes up, um, you know, the actual data and, yeah. you know, if there are any sort of correlations or predisposing factors that, you know, do jump out at people. Um, yeah. But it's just incredible. Yeah, and also males, you know, which mm. And I don't know, you know, about the, um, the ACE2 mm. receptors that will uptake the virus and women have more of the mm. ACE2. So I, I was trying to get this straight in my head because women have more ACE2, they are able to, I'm not, I'm not quite sure why women are not receptive, but someone do with the ACE2 and the fact that women have more ACE2 receptors. Yeah. Um, but the men seem to be more susceptible to it. Not to say women aren't dying, but the men mm. even like in families where people are, you know, managing home, the male gets sicker than It's that whole man flu thing. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> guess we should um go back so how did you get to new york what were you doing prior (laughs) to getting there um in terms of you know in new zealand where did you train um and what made you suddenly travel miles away (laughs) so i went to nursing school at massey wellington i graduated in 2003 yep um, and then after nursing school, I, I was headed to Monash in the oh, my new graduate year. But in between, um, my friend and I came to New York just for three months, uh, and I met my husband. And so, is he is you know, he I American? American. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, but I ended up going to Monash and uh, you know in Melbourne, and I did my new graduate year there. Mm-hmm. That. My last rotation was in the ICU, and I, you know, fell in love. And then with the ICU, yeah, <laughs> we got engaged. And my husband and I got engaged. And I, um, I'm from Hastings, so I moved home for four months while I was getting my visa. And I worked at Hawke's Bay Hospital mm-hmm. in the ICU there for yeah. like six months. And then I moved to New York, and I started at Mount Sinai in 2005. Right. Yeah. At the time, like, you know, I got there and I got my work visa and I set the inquiry exam and mm. then you know, what that was like, um, yeah, 2005. And been there ever since? 
yeah and I you know I took some time off when I had my kids and um and I you know I was full-time and then I was per diem or casual there mm. and then right now I've gone back full-time you know, during this mm. and so the ICU set up at Mount Sinai how how is that is it one ICU are there several and what sort of several. size units are they uh, so we so I'm in the medical ICU um we have a surgical ICU cardiothoracic ICU mm. um neurosurgical ICU um and then we have the NICU mm. the PICU so I think that yeah, I mean, in the medical issue, we get all sorts of overflow with everybody. Yeah. yeah, and of course, we were sort of the most um, ready to face it because, of, you know, we deal with the most respiratory conditions mm. um, So we were sort of floated to the, the units that they were opening up in the beginning that just had the COVID patients. So mm-hmm. We were the ones who helped them set everything up and get everything set up. But then now, like, all the ICUs are COVID ICUs. Right. Everybody's COVID. Yeah. But we use that to, you know, they modelled the one that we sort of started. That's what I talked about in my article. It was, like, Mm -hmm. the first night and we were figuring it out. So when um, did you sort of start realising, I guess, as a city, as a unit, that, you know, there was this, this sort of, influx of patients going to be coming um did it just happen all of a sudden did it you know was it overnight did you have weeks to prepare it felt like it was overnight yeah on a, um so i'm looking i thought it was a month ago but i think it was five weeks ago when mm. it really sort of all started and i work at another uh hospital for special surgery it's the world famous hospital i work shifts there during the week um and I said to them five or six weeks ago, I was like, look, I can't work here right now. I have to be at my phone in the ICU because things are starting to look crazy. And they were like, oh, it's going to be okay. Like, they weren't worried. And so I sort of started working at Mount Sinai full time, maybe yeah, it was five weeks ago. Um, and things were just sort of, we, would, we were starting to get that ICU set up and we'd have a couple of COVID patients and the rest of them will roll out. And then it just sort of snowballed. Mm. But it did feel like it was overnight. Yeah, I bet. And then that, that other hospital I work at that just does elective orthopedic procedures is now like taking COVID patients and um, only doing emergency trauma cases. And things mm. Like mm. It yeah, so it did. It really did feel like it just. Yeah. And do you think you were as a unit sort of ready for that um you know did <laughs> no <laughs> I mean I think the nursing stuff like we I mean my colleagues are all amazing and I think we just all just sort of rip, rose to it mm-hmm. we just like I mean like of course we were like you know what we were suddenly told all right this is how we're doing our PPE and now well PPE once how to do it and then we had to go and teach everybody else that I mean, it's not like we don't know how to put people in on, but there's the specific way they wanted us to do it. And I remember, like, showing up for my first shift at the ICU and my charge nurse was like, right, you're going to take everybody today. I'm going to just show you how we do it. And then I watched the video online and whatever. And then, you know, I'm teaching everybody 
and when by everybody I mean like the housekeeping, the mm-hmm. you know the the attendings or the consultants, but everybody they were clueless about how to work. Yeah. So we forced on us to, and we just you know what this is like. We just do it. Yep. I think, you know, the whole PPE thing is really fascinating to me because it's kind of come out that we've all had to learn and you suddenly think, well, you know, isn't this something we should all know how to do anyway, even in peacetime, that you you don't know what's going to roll through the door next, do you? Yes. Yeah. So we, like, yeah, exactly to your point, we already knew how to put PPE mm-hmm. on. But we were reusing the PPE, so there was a different way. And because we didn't have anti-rooms, we've got these makeshift negative pressure rooms that weren't negative pressure rooms. They have a big exhaust fan and they cut out the window and put a big uh, exhaust through that. So we don't have an anti-room, so you're doffing in a different way. You doff part of it outside, you leave your shield and your mask on, and you come out of the room and then you wash your hands again, and then you're cleaning your mask. So it was just more like adjusting to that. Mm-hmm. And we double gloves. Um, when we go in, um, and we had done a bowl of trans in 10-14, like we had a biocontamination right. unit. We, we never used it, thank God, but we were all trained for, and that was a whole different mm. PPE setup. Yeah, so mm. our nurses in our unit, we were the ones who trained for Ebola, so we were like, okay, here we go again. We're going to train for yeah. that. And then it did happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the thing. You never know when you're actually going to need it and use it, do you? And you have to keep doing it. Yeah. Like it's now really like pros at it. I mean, like it's like anything, right? Putting IVs and you don't do that for a couple of weeks and you're sort of like, oh, how do I do this again? You know, you yeah. lose your skills. So in terms of PPE, because, you know, that's everyone's fascination, isn't it? Um, how... Yeah. Often are you, you know, donning and doffing each day? Sort of what's your workflow like, I guess, once you get to work? So we, um, in states, we, our ICU pressures are two, the one nurse to two patients. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, sometimes we'll have to call four patients in line, which is a lot, but, um, yeah, so what do you think so the, the other day when I was at work, I had two patients in the same room. So they kind of changed my flow a little bit. Mm. I, I had two patients in the separate room, which felt luxurious, actually. Um, so in terms of having the two patients in the one room, we've got the two beds, the two beds, we've got the monitor in the room, we've got the cancer monitor in the So, you know, I, I would never normally work with her, but I would try and take everything I needed in for both patients at once. Um, so I would check, you know, I'd check what I needed to do and I would have a bag labelled with one patient with all their medication that I checked and scanned. But it was like nerve-wracking, you know, mm-hmm. going into the room with two patients, yep. just being really or trying to take everything in, but, like, keeping track of has one difficult because they've got the same diagnosis, similar medications. Mm-hmm. With that. And just, it goes, you know, you remember your basic nursing, like you can do a scan, you can define mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, you go, you're trying not to go in there every hour. Yeah. Um, sometimes you do have to go in a lot, depending on how. Yeah. Yeah. But we really had to advocate for ourselves. It's really hard if you're trying to do things in a different manner, isn't it, to what you would normally do and sort of, I don't know, accept a different standard slightly to what you'd normally practice at yeah we just want to be doing those things but you can't yeah. always do them yeah and turning you know every time I go in I would you know you're turning by yourself but we have these you know positioners that so every time I go in I turn I do mouth care all of those things but you just never feel like you're doing enough yeah so are the patients um you know very sedated deeply sedated Yep. Yeah, they are. I feel like we're back in the early 2000s now, <laughs> where we used to just today it would be. Yeah. Yes, like they're on high, high you know, opioids, um, benzos, often paralyzed, which we like very rarely do now unless, yeah. you know, they're very synchronous, very sick. But a lot of paralytics and deep sedation. And even without the paralytics, we keep them deep sedated so. We're getting, like, the other day we ran out of midazolam <laughs> drip. So, like, yeah, we that very sedated. Yeah, um, it's amazing. And, you know, interesting you comment that it feels like we're going backwards in time. You know, we're sort of yeah. in this era of trying to keep patients more lightly sedated. <laughs> but I guess, too, that's... that's definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to do what you have to do, don't you, to keep them safe. Yeah, and they're not synchronous. They're not, you know, they're difficult to ventilate. Um, not always because of their lung compliance, actually. Like a lot, you know, they sort of fall into two camps. They either have good compliance or they're in like full blown ARDS. So, but it just also you can't just rush in if they're grabbing their tube. Yeah. So it's just safety, but mostly just that prevent synchrony. And even with the paralytics, we don't have train of thought. We have like one train of thought for like, multiple patients so we're just titrating to synchrony and of course erring on the side of over sedating them mm. when they're paralyzed it's like yeah so yeah it feels like sort of and everybody you know we've gone away from central lines we do peripheral like uh, norepinephrine not all the time but um so but now everyone has an a-line everyone has a central line everyone's lined up yeah no. uh, yeah it's it going to be interesting like to see the recovery 15. for these patients you know it's um yeah could well be a bit longer couldn't it and you know sort of the yeah, I think recovery from critical illness yeah the after effect and they're going to be traumatized mm. as they often are mm. even after a regular review day um, but yeah, the delirium and all of that that mm. goes along with it, especially with those high doses of benzos and yeah, yeah, and not having relatives in to visit. I know, and so it's actually really strange. Mm. It's just us. It's yeah. just people that work there, 
um, we do FaceTime with the families and we'll take the iPads into the rooms and all of that. Um, but, yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. You know, people are dying. Or, you know, I had a 38-year-old that died. She had a lot of medical issues, but, you know, I was the one with her when she died, not her parents or her partner or whoever. I don't even know who the family were. Yeah. It was... Mm. It's just so um, different to what we usually know, isn't it? It is. And that's what I think people don't understand. Like a lot of the stuff, um, we normally do it, right? We normally do a lot of this, this, you know, the critical care stuff that we normally do, but the difference is not everyone has got the same Mm. illness and family are so involved in every day. And, and at the end of life, and the end of life stuff is just so not ideal. Yeah. Even the way that we manage them, like we're not doing terminal excavations because of the aerosoling. So people are just dying on the bed. On the bed. Oh, oh, great. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to reconcile that, isn't it? And, um, you know, sort of try and understand it even in times of a pandemic that this is just what the sort of new normal is for want of better term and yeah 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 there are a lot of discussions going on you know amongst you and your colleagues um and teams in terms of how do you deal with that I guess we just talk to each other about it and you know the other day having some situation and I just looked at the resident and I was like this sucks he was like I know and then we just like walked off I mean, just little, you know, just the acknowledgement. And I feel like everyone's, like, looking out for each other a little more and just checking in with each other. And, you know, we talk about how bad it is and we'll pair up. And I don't know, I feel like in the norm- in normal times we just get on with it. Yeah. Um, but I feel like we're giving ourselves a little more time and we'll check in. We have, like, a group, WhatsApp group, the nursing staff, and we'll check in with each other on there and share information and give each other a pep talk and all of that so but yeah it does feel different to everybody it feels and you know I try and make a I try and be with people when they're dying it's not always possible um but like and I feel like that sort of everyone sort of feels like we want someone to be in the room Mm. everyone's sort of feeling that yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really tough. It's um you know, still trying to respect the patient as a person and sort of carry on what you would normally do. Yeah. 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 It'll be interesting the feedback from um families at some point too, you know, in terms of how they have found it, how they've recovered from the yeah. loss of a loved one that they haven't been able to be with. Um. Mm. Oh, I can't even imagine. I had a young 50-year-old man a few weeks ago, and this is when we were still letting families come in occasionally for the end of life. And his wife, you know, came up, and she was just, like, in shock. And I helped her into her PPE and everything, and she was sort of, like, completely together, except her hands were shaking. And I just, I never forget seeing the just seeing how her hands were shaking so hard. And she couldn't even go in the room. She just stood outside. They were um, like Orthodox 
Jews and she was praying and and then they you know they they never make they often don't make their family members see in a house so we had to cope mm-hmm. she wasn't there when that happened but normally they have a direct removal of the body and they bury within 24 hours and they couldn't they can't do those things mm-hmm. so she just had to her family was waiting for the gun so she just had to leave yeah without his body and like just not even able to be there and then you can't even turn to your customs and your rituals Mm. I don't know. Yeah. The other psychological trauma that those families must be going through. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's just unbelievable. And um, I think, you know, the the flow-on effects will be there for years, won't they? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, everything's going to change now. Mm. I mean, on the on the... On a bright side, I guess, I feel like we're sort of practising medicine and nursing in a very pragmatic way right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're sort of like, is this helpful? Is this necessary before we sort of do anything? And it sort of feel, and we don't have administrative hanging around, like we didn't do this documentation. And I don't know if it's like that in New Zealand, but they're very like on top, you know, very litigious. So... Yeah. We don't have any of that, and it's very, like, cut down, like, for the documentation we have to do. So we just feel like we're doing the important stuff and we don't have people hanging around us telling us to do these unimportant things. Mm. Um, so that, there's, like, a freedom, actually, to the way we're practising right now, which we're all sort of enjoying, <laughs> if for want of a better word. So it's, like, not – I mean, it's, like, tragic and – harrowing and horrible but then there's some bright spots mm. also it's an interesting observation though yeah 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 wonder yeah, how long it'll sort of, last we should, yeah i'll probably when this is over it'll be back to the way it was but i hope some positive um changes come out mm. of it so, mm. i don't know that I mean, the u.s health system is so messed up um <laughs> if it is so um, that's that's a whole nother interview, isn't it? <laughs> a whole other interview. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you think there'll be any changes, um, you know, in terms of as a unit how you look after patients or how you look after yourselves? Um, you know, having gone through this, and, and you know, you talk about opportunities, which there's huge opportunities, isn't there? Can you think of something yeah. that might change? I mean, I hope that the nursing staff will feel more more empowered because mm. I definitely feel like we've sort of realised how we knew we were valuable, but we, we've realised how valuable we are in mm. this and how, you know, the medical staff are listening to us, like they look to us. Um, we're doing the majority of the hands-on work, you know, as always, but particularly now you feel it because you're all the one going in the room six yeah. and they don't go in at all. Um, so I, I hope that we feel more empowered, that, mm-hmm. you know, that we are valuable, that our contribution is valuable. Because, you know, nurses can sort of, and I, I do this myself, we're just sort of in the background, yeah. keeping the wheels turning and not really being acknowledged. And that's part of why I wrote that piece that I wrote. Mm-hmm. But I just want people to see us. Yeah. I want them to just see me. It's so invisible what we do. Yeah. But so vulnerable. Yeah, I think it just sort and of that's gets... that's why 
gets forgotten about, doesn't it? And that's why people are in the hospital yeah. for nursing care. That's why hospitals exist. That's the, the point of the hospital is for nursing care. And I don't think people really understand that. Mm. So I hope that maybe it'll empower the nurses, um, that the teamwork that is really so wonderful right now will continue. Mm. Like we're having te- uh, nurses and doctors from other specialties we had a NICU attending, um, he was from Ireland actually, come and he was just helping out, putting in lines and just helping out yeah. the other day. You know, he, he looked after little babies, but he came, he was helping out. Mm-hmm. I hope that that interdisciplinary collaboration will continue. Mm. And how are you finding, um, you know, in terms of the team, because... Um, you know, the US sort of setups are very different to New Zealand or Australia in terms of having respiratory yeah. therapists and people like that available yeah. to help too. So how how's the team working together in terms of, um, you know, integrating people in from either other disciplines or allied healthcare um, team members as well sort of during a pandemic? Yeah, probably respiratory is the most Vital. At our hospital, our respiratory therapists aren't quite as prominent as they are at some other hospitals. Um, at other hospitals, they are like the airway team, you know, mm. they intubate and do all that. Our respiratory therapists don't do those things. They're more just event management. But actually in saying that, um, I think someone on Facebook was like, <laughs> in relation to my article, made a, I'm not on Facebook, but I saw it on the internet like that I shouldn't have been touching the vent because I'm not a respiratory therapist and it kind of made me laugh, right? I'm yeah. like, I've been a nurse for 17 years and I see a nurse at that. Like I know how to, I know my way around a ventilator. Um, but like we actually do a lot of the vent management. Like, you know, obviously when something goes wrong with the vent, I call respiratory because I don't know all the ins and outs of mm. the machine. But of course, you know, I know how to interpret a blood gas. I know how to change vent settings and, and we do most of the suctioning, the trait care, the, right. all that stuff. We're, like, we're doing that. And, I mean, they do it as well. But I feel like particularly at my hospital, they're probably not as prominent as they are in some other hospitals where I know, like, sometimes they do absolutely all of that, mm. that stuff. But, but we we actually do a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. So a bit I mean, more like we they, do down they, here. Yeah, except, I mean, when I worked in Australia, I remember the, the nurses there were just like, they could pull, take it apart and put it back together, yeah. you know. I mean, I'm not quite, you can probably do that. Um, but, like, if we need nitric oxide or whatever, the respiratory test, yeah. they do that. But, yeah. And how are the um, so, nutritionists or physiotherapists able to access the patients or, you know, is that sort of backed off a bit or...? Yeah, nutrition, I mean, they can do a lot of the phone consults and things. Like, they're definitely writing their notes and calling us and keeping track of, because, you know, metabolically, this patient's mm. quite complicated. And also, like, some of the feeds we don't always have, so they have to get creative. Um, I mean, we get them eventually, but, like, sometimes we'll run out of, like, Nepro, which is the one we use mm. for our renal patients. Um, so, yeah, that. They're very prominent, but more so electronically uh, and on the phone. Um, physio, I don't think I've seen physio in the ICU. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure on the floors they're definitely still mm-hmm. doing this thing. Um, but, but these patients are like paralyzed, sedated. Mm-hmm. So 
yeah, they may round and just see if there's anybody that they can work with, but they're often with them. Mm. But our chaplains, uh, social workers, a lot of their stuff is, you know, remote, talking to families and checking in with them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but they're definitely there working really hard. Yeah. But I think Deb is more remote mm. contact. Mm, mm. And what about support services for the nurses and, you know, um, medical staff? Have they increased at all or are people more aware of people's mental health, do you think? Um, I mean, my nurse manager particularly has been amazing. Like, she's, you know, we see her all the time. She, you know, checks in with us. Mm. She wears gloves to work so she can help out. She, you know, changes our schedule for us if we feel like we've done too many days in a while. Like she's been really, really collective and I, we all feel supported. Mm. We have two great assistant nurse managers who are always floating on the floor helping us. So I feel supported in that way, actually. Um, and I see a lot of the upper management now that I've never used to see. They come and sort of round and do their elbows bumps with us so that kind of feels nice just that they are seeing us you know yeah like the president of the hospital he i think i see him pretty much every day that i'm working he comes around Mm. but um yeah probably i'm sure it could be better um but i think like just in my unit my direct managers are being really thoughtful Mm. yeah and what about um the end of the day, going home, trying not to take all this home, <laughs> everything that you've seen through the day. Um, any strategies for when you leave work or get home? Yeah, I mean, we the hospital now gives us grub to change in and out of, like the OR grub, which was a big thing. I mean, there's like thousands, there's thousands of nurses in my hospital. So it was sort of, it took them a while to sort of coordinate all of that. Um, so I get changed at work now, leave my shoes there and everything, which is good. Um, I often will I share a car home with a colleague or something. So, you know, of course we talk <laughs> and decompress together. Um, and just, you know, it's similar to like after any shift in the ICU that's been intense, right? I mean, I come home immediately have a shower before I sort of even talk to my family. Um, my husband's always cooked dinner for me and we'll just I'll watch the Great British Bake Off <laughs> a lot uh, sometimes I'll turn I never used to watch the news but I started sort of watching CNN a little bit sort of when I get home but then there's only so much of that you can take but again like I, like I said we'll watch the Great British Bake Off and then I just try and go to bed and in the beginning it was actually quite hard to sleep there was a lot, a lot of like, anxiety but I feel like we've as you said, and it's like a new normal, sort of, we've figured it out. Mm. So I do, I don't have any trouble sleeping now. Sort of and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, thank you. I try and go outside on my days off, at least with a mask on. I walk around the maze and read a lot of Yeah. And then kids, my kids do distraction. <laughs> Good distraction. <laughs> Are they are they home from school at the moment? Are they being homeschooled? Yes. And yeah, yeah, that's tough. They are. 
it's but so yeah, I mean, they're doing it, and I'm trying to just relax my standards yeah a little bit and say, oh okay just go read a book you know <laughs> so we get there yeah. we're getting there yeah uh, um and then what makes you get up the next day and go back and do it all again i actually want to be there mm. i actually like i'm working tomorrow and i've got my scrub ready and mm. i don't know like I don't know what's going on right now. Maybe it's the camaraderie, the team, but I want to go to work. Mm. Yeah, I want to be there. It's I feel like you're doing something. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel more connected with your colleagues at the moment? Yeah. 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 I mean, like, we always do, right, in critical care, you're always yeah. pretty close to your colleagues because, you know, when you've dealt, dealt with life and death with somebody, you make sure she's pretty close. But, yeah, definitely much. Um, mm. Yeah, and like I have some goodies to take them tomorrow. One of my friends um, knows a person who owns a stock company, so I have these stupid bags of like really quirky stock. Nice to take in, and and then another friend of mine made a bunch of surgical caps for everyone. So I'm going to take all those in tomorrow. So that'll mm. be fun. Oh, that'll be yeah. cool. Small <laughs> things, eh? But just meaningful, yeah, fun things. Yeah, people really. It really means a lot. Yeah. Any um, tips and tricks that you think we should know of down this end of the world, just in case we <laughs> suddenly see uh, an influx? <laughs> yes. Um, there's no emergency during COVID. Make sure you put your PPE on. You don't just rush in the room, which is, you know, our instinct is to rush in. Mm. No, we keep saying there's no emergency. Put your PPE on properly and then go in the room um just trying to think outside the box you know we've hacked our a lot of our ng tubes and things hacked them so we can have them outside the room like there's always a solution may not be like something that you would normally do but if it works and it's sterile <laughs> then you know um and just advocate this is for the nursing nurses advocate for yourself but speak up like there's a lot to offer yeah. your ideas your um you know you're your patient advocate you're your own advocate just speak up if something doesn't make sense and just, mm. you know, communication keep those communication lines open mm. and yeah check in with each other yeah it's so important isn't it yeah, mm. yeah. oh look Thank you. I mean, I think that's amazing insight into what's going on. And, you know, hopefully down this end of the world, we're actually not going to have to, <laughs> fingers crossed. I think it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, certainly, you know, we get, we see cases, but not to the same extent. Um, and yeah. so I guess it's hopefully a little bit more manageable um, for everyone and for yeah. departments. But, you know, I mean, what you guys have experienced is just phenomenal. And um, yeah. any signs so far of it slowing down where you are? Um, I keep hearing that admissions are down. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually walked past my friend's house today. He's an anesthesiologist at NYU. And he told me he's been, they have a lot less admissions. Mm -hmm. And I think one of their ICUs had like some incidents or something. So that I was like, okay. And I haven't been at work for two days, so uh -huh. we'll see. Um, but I feel like we, 
I mean, I, ha- I sort of don't want to jinx it. No. Long, I feel like we sort of have a, we have a loose sort of grip on it, Yeah, I feel like. And we sort of, it, there's not as much unknown. There's not so much worry about, am I going to get sick? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I feel like we sort of know what, what we're in for a little more. And I feel like, like we, my hospital, the whole lobby downstairs has been converted into patient care areas, mm. but they're, they're empty. Yeah. Because we just didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. So the fact that they're still empty down there, sort of, I don't think we're going to be like, I don't think we're going to be overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. We haven't had to split vents yet or anything like that. So. I know. You see pictures like that and you think, oh my God, what oh. are we in for? Yeah. I know. We were like discussing it and a few weeks ago and it was just like, we felt sick. Yeah. 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 But we haven't had to do that yet. I mean, look, with CVVH, we're running, we only have a certain number of dolls, and we kind of have to sometimes take one off and to give to another. But in terms of like the vents, we haven't had to do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Small gains. <laughs> Small gains. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. What an incredible story. What an incredible time. As we sit at this end of the world, we really have no concept of what it is like to go through this. I love how Simone says they have realised just how valuable they are as nurses and how she hopes this continues into the future. We certainly send much aroha, love, to all our colleagues around the world facing challenges and heartbreak while caring for these sick, sick patients. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome. Thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying the experience. As always, if you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.